morning, God's Word comes to us from Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. We're going to read just the first 35 verses of this chapter. Acts 15, beginning at verse 1. What we hear now is God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church 
to choose men from among, among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to turn to the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal to page 867 in the back section. This is the Belgic Confession of Faith, one of the doctrinal standards of our church. And this morning we're going to read just Article 32 of the Confession. It's top of the second column on page 867. Article 32 entitled, The Order and Discipline of the Church. We also believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to establish and set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church, they ought always to guard against deviating from what Christ, our only master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. This is our confession of faith. Well, we have for the last several weeks been talking about our understanding of what it is to be the church. And we have talked about the marks of the church. We talked about the characteristics of the church. Last time we talked about the offices of the church. How God in his mercy has given us ministers and elders and deacons to minister in the name of Christ, 
to express his authority and his care over the congregation. And so this, uh, this morning we move on in the confession to talk about the nature of the decisions that these office bearers make for us. Again, last week, the office bearers themselves and where their authority comes from, and now more of a practical application of that, what do we do or how do we understand the decisions that they make? And how do, how do those decisions of the office bearers in the church relate to our own Christian liberty? What decisions may they make? What decisions may they not make, lest they go beyond the bounds of their authority? What is the nature of the decisions of the office bearers? And I really think that there's two dangers we have when considering that question. One is to give the office bearers too much authority. And to say, you know what, uh, they can do whatever they want, and whatever they say, we have to do. The other, and I think the more common, is to give the office bearers too little authority. And to assume that their decisions are simply good, pious advice for us. Things we can take or leave. And so we have to find that balance between recognizing the nature of the authority of the decisions that they make. This morning we look at Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is sometimes called the first synod of the churches. A synod is where uh, elders and ministers get together uh, to discuss theological matters. And that's certainly what's taking place in Acts chapter 15. The elders are getting together to dis and the apostles to discuss theological matters and to, to express how we should practice our faith. And we still have synods today in the United Reformed Churches this coming summer, uh, summer of 2024, down in Escondido. For a whole week, there'll be a, a meeting of ministers and elders to discuss theological matters and the practice of our faith in the United Reformed Churches. How do, we, how do we receive the decisions made by the broader assemblies? How do we receive the decisions made by our own local assembly, the consistory of our church and the decisions that they make? That's what we talk about this morning as we look at Acts 15 and, and church ordinances and our Christian liberty. The church in the New Testament had been spreading uh, perhaps uh, to put this text of 15 in context, uh, turn back to Acts 11. Acts 11, we read about the spread of the gospel. I'm going to pick up the reading in Acts 11 at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one, except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, non-Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We have the spreading of the gospel to two kinds of people. To those who were steeped in Judaism and to those who were new to the faith. And those who, who had a Jewish background, while certainly recognizing the grace of God, wanted to hold on to their tradition of the keeping of the law. That the law was still in some way valuable when it came to being accepted in the sight of God. Then you have those who are the Greeks, who are the Hellenists, who are the non-Jews, who had no background like that, so had no need for the Old Testament law of God. And of course, that caused a problem. That caused dissension in the church. And so we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You needed to do something in order to be saved. Not just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also a keeping of the law unto salvation. That was the issue. To put it in maybe perhaps more contemporary terms, are we saved, they would say, by faith alone, simply by faith in Jesus Christ? Or are they saved by faith and by their works? That was the issue. And that issue, as you recognize, was not for their time only. It is a contemporary issue. Still being discussed today, how are we saved? Are we saved by faith alone, or are we saved by our faithfulness? In fact, in our own Federation of Churches back in 2010, at our synod, adopted a very long statement on the nature of salvation and justification. Is it by faith alone, or is it by faith and works? This is at the heart of the gospel. How do we understand the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in comparison to our salvation. That's what's at issue. That's the theological problem they were called to deal with. And so they met together in Jerusalem to find a solution. Verse 6 of chapter 15, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And as they discuss this issue, whether we are saved by faith alone or whether we are saved by faith and, uh, and works, a lot of people weigh in, and then certain, certain prominent voices uh, arise and are heard by the assembly. The voices of Peter and of Paul and of James in verse 7. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test and placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Peter tells his story. And you remember that story, children, how Peter was called to talk to the Gentiles, not just the Jews. We talked about this in our, in our series on Acts. It's been a little while ago. How Peter had that vision of a sheet coming down out of heaven with all kinds of, of animals in it. Animals Peter was not supposed to touch or eat. And a voice said, go ahead and, and, and eat these things. And Peter says, oh, no, no, I won't touch anything unclean. And God says to him, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And Peter began to realize that the gospel was not only for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles as well. And so Peter goes to the Gentiles and brings the gospel to them. That's the, that's the story he's recounting in Luke chapter 15. And while that is certainly an encouraging story, and certainly the truth of what happened. I hope that, that you're a little uneasy with Peter's argument. Because Peter is basically arguing from his own experience. This is what happened to me. This is what God did through me. And... and the trouble with an argument from experience is there's always someone who's had a different experience. Arguing from experience is not sufficient to decide the theological question. And we have that at synods today. Uh, if you listen to the argumentation on the floor of synods or general assemblies, you'll hear people arguing from experience. This is how I see it. This is what happened to me. This is what happened in my family. And, and those, those, those uh, arguments are well-meant and certainly true, but an argument from experience is not sufficient to decide the theological question. We read in verse 12, All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now Paul gets up. I'm going to speak to the issue and talks about the signs and the wonders and the blessings he'd received in his ministry. And while that is certainly all true, we don't decide theological issues based upon apparent blessing in the ministry. Because, because we know there are churches that are apparently blessed even today yet, where the gospel is absent. We don't use apparent blessing as our metric to determine the truth of what the scripture says. What happens? Verse 13. 
After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, his experience, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What is James' argument? James' argument is not his experience. James' argument is not apparent blessing. James' argument is, this is what the word of God says. This is exactly what we should expect. Because God's word promised this. James gives an application of the scriptures to the theological problem of the day. And it is that application of scripture then that carries the day in Jerusalem. Verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This is what was expected. This is what God had promised. The prophets spoke about this. And so let's not trouble them by all kinds of extra keeping of the law. Let's recognize these are those whom God has chosen who by faith have come to him. And he answers the theological question based upon an application of God's word. And that should still be how the church makes decisions today, whether on the broader assembly level or on the local level. An application of the, church, of the word of God not based on our experience, not based on apparent blessing, but an application of God's word. And in this case, it was so that the gospel could be clearly heard and embraced, that the Gentiles might not be troubled, might not be burdened, but as they placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, they could know the assurance, the fullness of salvation. That was the answer to the question. Of course, that is still the answer to the question today when the issue of faith and works comes up. We are saved by the grace of God alone, through the instrument of faith, and that is that we might do works knowing we have been saved. The call of the gospel is not be obedient. The call of the gospel is put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, that's all, and know the glories of salvation. That's the call that goes out this morning. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and know the assurance of the forgiveness of your sins. It, 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 it doesn't surprise us that this is the result that they came to. Therefore, my judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That doesn't surprise us. What does surprise us, or maybe should surprise us, is what they go on to say. Verse 20 but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. These things are not at the heart of the gospel, 
These things are matters of the ceremonial law. And yet, yet the assembly said, with regard to the question of circumcision, do we need to have faith or faith in works? It is faith alone that saves us. But we're also going to say, beyond that, you should avoid these ceremonial things. The pollution of matters offered to idols, that's ceremonial. The strangling of things, that's ceremonial. Abstain from blood, that's ceremonial. From sexual immorality, in the context in which this is found, Leviticus 17 18, this is also a ceremonial a prescription. But they, 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 they commend these things as well for the peace, harmony, and order in the churches. And that's what our confession talks about when it says in, in uh, Article 32, we believe it is useful and good for those who govern the churches to set up a certain order among themselves for maintaining the body of the church. So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. They not only answered the theological question, they went beyond that to give some specific instructions regarding a ceremonial matter, a matter that was not at the heart of the gospel, that was not crucial to salvation, but yet this was, this was the, the decision of the body to answer the question and then to give these instructions. And they're going to send a letter out to tell the churches what they decided and send some men along to, to testify to the truth of that letter. We read in verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. They not only correct the error, but they give four other instructions as well. What happens when the letter comes to the Gentile churches? Verse 31. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now certainly they would rejoice in the answer to the question, you do not have to be circumcised, but they rejoiced in the letter being written. And even in these four other prescriptions, they did not say, who do these elders think they are? We asked them one theological question and they came back with four other things we had to do. They did not say, who do they think they are to tell us how we should run our churches? They rejoiced that the elders who had been given the authority of Christ would, would give instructions for the harmony and for the peace of the church. They were thankful for what they heard. Our confession says, it is helpful for maintaining the body of the church. We always ought to guard ourselves against deviating from what Christ, our master, has ordained for us. Therefore, we reject all human inno inno innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God which bind and force our conscience in any way. They did not claim that by doing these four things their consciences would be bound. 
we sometimes hear that today, a, 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 a consistory or a classis or a synod makes a decision and someone says, my conscience is bound by that. I think we misunderstand the binding of the conscience. For our conscience to be bound doesn't mean I disagree with the decision. That's not what that means. It means that if I were to do this thing, it would cause me to sin. That's a very different standard than just not liking the decision. They gave an application of the word of God. They settled the theological principle and then gave an application of that in the churches. And we don't read that next year they called the Jerusalem Council again and there was a minority report and somebody was appealing the decision from before in hopes that they could change the decision. They received the decision with rejoicing. When our consistory comes to us, when the classes comes to us, when the synod comes to us, with a carefully thought out decision based upon the word of God and an application of that word, our response is to receive that with joy. That they have thought enough of, of, of taking this, this matter uh, to our broadest assemblies and wrestling with it in light of the scriptures and then giving us their their ruling that we can live in peace and harmony as churches. Not violating our conscience, but thankful. Thankful that we have those who will care so much about the church of our Lord Jesus Christ that they will give of their time to wrestle with these issues. The office bearers in the church are a blessing of Christ given to his church to help us in our walk with God, to help us in theological matters, keeping the church safe, keeping the church pure, but also to help us in wisdom matters. Not at the heart of the gospel, but matters of wisdom. This would be good for you. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to go beyond these few prescriptions. And we are to receive those with joy. That Christ would love his church so much, he would... He would teach us how to live through the decisions of the office bearers of the church for the peace and unity that the gospel might continue to go forward. That the church might not be distracted by a number of secondary issues. But having, having settled those as well, that the gospel can go forward. We receive the decisions in love and rejoicing when our consistory, when our classes, when our synod make those decisions. Thanking God for his gifts, thanking God for the wisdom he provides, and thanking him that our church can live in peace, in harmony with each other, with the rest of our fellow churches, and the gospel goes forth clearly and unhindered. That's, that's the blessing office bearers in the church. That's the blessing of the decisions, the ordinances which the church makes. Not to be um, unnecessarily questioned. Not to claim our conscience is bound when we simply disagree. But to thank God that he loves us enough. He loves his church enough to minister the love of Christ through the office bearers of the local church of the broader assembly. Let's join together in prayer. 
Lord our God, we know that your son Jesus Christ is the only king and head of his church. We know that, we confess that, we believe that. And yet we know that Jesus Christ has gone back to heaven. And so he chooses to administer his church through the office bearers in the church. Help us to recognize those office bearers as a gift from you. Help us to pray for them regularly, that you would enlighten them with biblical wisdom. That for the questions which they encounter, they do not look first to experience, they do not look first to perceive blessing, but they look to your word and how to apply that word to the situation. We thank you for our local office bearers. We thank you for our elders. We thank you for the wisdom you have given to them. We thank you for their desire to, to make decisions which will bring honor and glory to you and also serve us well as your people. That we might live in the peace and the harmony and the joy of being the church of Jesus Christ. Accept our thanks, O oh God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to turn to number 133B. Number 133B, how good and pleasant is the sight when brethren make it their delight to dwell in blessed accord. We're going to sing all three verses, 133B. Let's stand together as we sing. Receive the parting blessing of our God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.